Welcome to Season 6 of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, a fascinating journey into the lives of top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They reveal entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories many you've never heard before. During Season 6, you'll hear the likes of Pat Fitzgerald, Ron Rivera, Lisa Byington, Porter Moser, and many, many more. I'm your host, George Hoffman, and please follow this podcast through our partnership with Sports Media Watch. You can find them and this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcast. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is proudly sponsored by Vienna Beef, makers of the world-famous Chicago hot dog and a landmark institution since 1893. Find them at ViennaBeef.com. And by Dynamic Manufacturing, awarded the General Motors Supplier of the Year 23 times. This family-owned business can be found at DynamicManufacturingInc.com. This week, we feature the best of year two. I go, why don't you start a sports station? And he looked at me and he says, why would I do that? Phil was a different approach. He would get emotional at times, but he used those moments of emotion to really get your attention. We became the first uh, independent vehicle to actually ever publish draft ratings available to the public. And the first guy says his name and I say, hi, I'm Dave. And the second guy says his name. I say, hi, I'm Dave. And the third guy says, I'm and that's where the mental stuff really came into play, where I was a huge believer in getting the mind right, because I believe that if the mind's not right, the body will not follow. We're going to take a chance, answer some tough questions, and, and take a chance and, and, and get them back in the booth. Tough to choose the best stories out of some 40 interviews, but we managed to pick out six. They go from helping found a sports radio station to beating cancer to having a golf game with one of the most notorious figures of the 20th century. Every guest we featured in 2022 delivered wonderful, humorous, and touching stories, and we thank all of them for participating. We begin the best of year two with Mike North, a pioneer in sports talk radio in Chicago, and in more ways than one. When you're younger, there's a lot of things you don't know. But the one thing I'd like to always say that it's going to be 30 years of WSCR where so many wonderful memories, so many wonderful people, so many ups and downs, as you say, so many people thinking we weren't going to make it, so many people doubting the partners that were put together on a three-show station that went down at sundown. And I think it's the reason we were on, not the idea. The idea is well-known by many, but not by many. Danny Lee was, in my opinion, one of the great radio men who will ever live in um, Chicago or anywhere. Um, he owned WXRT. They used to come into my hot dog stand, Norm Weiner, Lynn Bramer, many Wonderful people, Terry Hemmert, on air, off air, Robert Plant. They brought people back or around that were rock stars, Johnny Hyatt, people like that. And I got to tell you, Danny Lee came in one day and I said, hey, how are you? He goes, good. And I knew Danny okay. But I was doing a show called the NFL Handicap Show on WSBC. And with WSBC, it was a brokered uh, station that Danny Lee knew or had. And I brokered time. 
went on the air for 300 bucks an hour because I got a guy that you know, Tom Couch, to produce it for me. Mm -hmm. We did a show called the NFL Handicap Show. I started handicapping on radio in 1989. And then I got a guy uh, that you knew from the Sun-Times, uh, Dan Cahill. Yes. Solicit. And I started getting an audience. And I basically got the idea of a sports station when I started seeing that Danny Lee was going to basically start a jazz or country station. It was in Rob Peter's article column. He comes in one day and I said, Hey, why are you doing that? And he said, what? He says, well, I heard you bought WJZZ that you're going to go jazz or country. He goes, yeah. I go, why don't you start a sports station? And he looked at me and he says, why would I do that? I says, cause there's about 12 markets that have it or right now, New York, the fan, uh, California, San Diego, uh, Philadelphia. I said, but you, we need one here. He says, dad, it's all right. We started talking a little bit about everything else. He orders his food. He goes out. I chase him out. <laughs> it's raining, raining, pouring. BB's going, we got a line here. I go, I got to talk to this guy one more time. He's got the window down. Seth Mason, who was a great, great radio guy. Yes. They're both gone now, who I love very much, both of them, was sitting shotgun. I go, you guys got to start a sports station. Start a sports station. That's all I said. Don't be ridiculous. They roll the window up on me and drive off. I'm, <laughs> I'm soaked now. That weekend, Danny Lee goes home on the Friday night. He's supposed to meet Monday with the new format, whether it's going to be cool country or jazz. He goes to the convenient and he buys what Murph used to call the bulldog edition of the paper, the Sunday yeah, paper. Sure. He buys a Tribune. Now, he told me this in a three hour interview that we're going to use for a future project. The only thing I regret is he didn't want it taped, but we had witnesses, including a screenwriter, Jeremy Morrison. So this was the first time I heard this. He says, you gave me the idea. I go, yeah, but why did you decide? And he said, I bought the Sunday Tribune, the Sunday Sun-Times. I went to the entertainment section. There was three, four prevalent ads. He says, I went to the sports sections of the paper when they were this thick, George. When the Sun-Times, Sunday edition was bigger then the papers are now sports section. <laughs> That's true. He counted like 27, 30 ads, you know, little ads, big ads, my all things associated with at that time, male dominated people reading the, the sports section. He was already thinking money. Absolutely. That Monday morning, the understanding that he told us was they met in the conference room that they had at WXRT. Everybody that works there knows it. It was just a regular place. You know, it wasn't nothing fancy. And uh, with Norm Weiner, Harvey Wells, Seth Mason, other people. And they said, what are we going to do? And he said, we're going to start a sports station. Good morning, everybody, and good sports to you, and welcome to an historic day in Chicago broadcasting history. The Score, Sports Radio 820, WSCR, is the first ever all-sports radio station in Chicago. They went nuts, from what I understand, 
Remember, I was told this. And they said, you're going to listen to that goofy hot dog guy? You know, we don't know anything about sports. And you know what he said? We better learn. And he went on to start the greatest sports station ever put together. There are not many players in NBA history to have won four titles, but Will Purdue did, and with two teams. The much maligned center with the Chicago Bulls and San Antonio Spurs, and now a TV analyst, has some rather interesting things to say about the NBA coaches he worked under. Unfortunately for Doug, we never really had the opportunity to develop a relationship as a player or as a person. I've actually developed a relationship with, with him as a person after the fact. You know, it's kind of funny. I run into him occasionally at the golf course or up in the Northbrook area because he's in town visiting his son, Chris, and, you know, hanging out with the grandkids. And we, we chat and have no problems, no ill will, nothing. But, you know, in my opinion, Doug's biggest drawback was he was just very emotional, wore his emotions on his sleeve. That's what made him such a good player, which, which made him so successful, is his ability to use those emotions to, to – you know, motivate himself to push himself. But sometimes those, those things that make you a really good player can hurt you as a coach. If you're more emotional than the players, they looked at as a slight on them. You know, it's just players have become too sensitive. And I think that was the biggest drawback for him was he coached with emotion, just like he played. And that didn't necessarily affect him how he coached, but it affected, in my opinion, the relationships that he had with players. Phil was a different approach. He would get emotional at times, but he used those moments of emotion to really get your attention. Otherwise, he was, for the most part, pretty quiet in the background. And when I say mean by in the background, he didn't do a lot during practices. The practices were run by uh, Tex Winter and Johnny Bach. Phil, because of his back, couldn't like stand still for long periods of time. If he was going to be standing, he had to be moving. So a lot of times in our practices, Phil would just constantly be walking circles around the court because he couldn't stand still for long periods of time and just watch, observe. So he would be like, all right, Tex, you run uh, the first part of practice because we're going to go over the offense, which is the, you know, the, the, the famous triangle. And then, okay, now it's time to start doing defensive aspects. Johnny Bach, it's your turn. Johnny Bach would take over practice. And Tex was the voice. Johnny Bach was the voice. But on game day, there was one voice and one voice only. That was Phil. Bob Hill was the coach in San Antonio when I was my first year there when I got traded for Dennis. And I had never seen a coach so organized, so attentive, knowledgeable. But the thing that Bob Hill lacked was the trust in himself and the work that he had done prior to games. Just from an, a, a basketball mindset, talk about basketball IQ, there's never been a coach that I've played for. CM Newton, Doug Collins, Mike Dunleavy, Greg Popovich, Phil Jackson, that is on the same level from an IQ standpoint as Bob Hill. The biggest thing about Pop was, was two things. One, Pop dumbed things down to where he made it easier, not harder. But for me, 
the biggest thing about pop was you really felt like pop cared about you as a person, as an individual. You weren't just a basketball player to him. You weren't just a guy trying to help him win games. When I got traded to San Antonio and it, it started from day one. No. So remember at that point, he's the general manager, Bob Hills, the coach as, as pissed off as I was, because you remember when I got traded, you know, that was the year Michael came back. We lost to Orlando in the second round of the playoffs. You knew what was coming. I always say this. I'm not a gambling man, but if I would have been a gambling man, I would have bet every penny I had that the Bulls were winning the championship. Every penny. And you don't understand how excited the, the, uh, that offseason was leading up to that season. And boom, I get traded a week before the season starts. So I get traded, and it's just that's demoralizing. I'm just, you know, I'm not happy. But all of a sudden, we get to the Spurs offices. Bob's there, welcomes me, pops there. We're going to training camp the next day. That's remember, that was the lockout, and I get traded, and all that stuff happens. So it's like bang, bang, bang. Pop sits me down and he looks at me square in the eye. He goes, listen, we traded for you for a reason. The Bulls tried to give us other players, didn't want them. And whether this is BS or not, it doesn't matter. I feel like it's not because I always felt like Pop was honest with me. He was, up, he was brutally honest. That's the type of thing I responded to. But he was brutally honest in a very tender, fatherly way. And he told me, he goes, we traded for you for a reason. We think that you, there are things you can do to help this team win that you were not allowed to do in Chicago. So as of today, the day before training camp started, you currently have no limitations on your skill set. And I said, really? He goes, yeah. If you think you can shoot the three, you shoot a, a thousand threes over the next four weeks during preseason games and practices. And I'm like, all right, that was who Pop was in a nutshell. Uh, another example, we're playing the Utah Jazz in the playoffs. I, you know, it's back to that year we were doing the triple towers with me, Tim Duncan, and David Robinson. And when I mean brutally honest, he would just say, hey, we need you to guard Carl Malone. I can't have David guard him. I can't have Tim guard him. Or I'd prefer that they didn't guard him because we don't want them getting in foul trouble. He goes, you have six fouls. Use them wisely, but we also feel like you're our best option to guard Carl Malone. So we had a game where I think Malone scored like 36. Pop comes over to me as I'm sitting there after he's talked to the team after the game and everybody's showering and getting treatment, and he sat down next to me and put his arm around me, and he goes, listen, unfortunately tonight you hurt us. And I was like, what? You know, now, you know, as a player, you're like, wait a minute, this guy's – this guy's attacking me. But then I just like, all right, hold on. Just continue to listen before you respond. He goes, I know you can play better. The guys in this locker room know you can play better. And you, and for us to win this series, you have to play better. And I was like, well, you're right. So he got up and he said, forget about this. Let's get ready for the next game. Now the story's not over because finally I got to take a shower, get dressed, get on the bus. We get to the hotel as I'm getting off the bus, who's standing there waiting for me, but Pop pulls me aside and he says, throw your bag in your room, we're going to dinner. And I've already been to dinner with him many times. And Pop had one rule when you went to dinner, whether it was individually, with the group of guys, the team as a whole. When Pop took you to dinner, 
the one rule was we talk about everything but basketball. That was the difference between Pop and any other coach I ever played for. Vienna beef, two words synonymous with hot dogs. They're the home of the Chicago hot dog and an institution since 1893. If you've had a hot dog, chances are it was from Vienna. And did you know there are more locations selling Vienna in Chicago than McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's combined? There's nothing like biting into a juicy and delicious pure beef Vienna hot dog dragged through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and some celery salt. And oh, those Polish sausages dripping with flavor. And look for the spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasoning such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar, creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available in restaurants, grocery stores, and entertainment venues such as the ballparks, cups, and socks, stadiums, museums, and zoos. Plus, you can purchase them online, coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and on Amazon. And remember, Vienna is not just hot dogs and sausages. Look for their farm makers' chili, mini bagel dogs, condiments, and classic deli meats. Take it from a guy who was weaned on, then sold Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at ViennaBeef.com. Humbargish is on the mend. After suffering a traumatic brain and heart issue last spring, the longtime football journalist has been making a slow and arduous recovery, and those of us who know him are delighted with his progress. Earlier in the year, Arkish discussed his role as the editor of Pro Football Weekly, which began over 55 years ago. You know, my dad launched the, the, the business in 1967. He had been successful in, in private publishing, and yet really, even in 1967, you didn't launch a publishing company with $30,000 of your life savings. And so early on, uh, the business struggled and, and through, unfortunately, the entire 12 years that he oversaw it, uh, never made money. And it was a constant battle to keep the doors open. And uh, just at, at the time that he passed, about a year earlier, um, he had brought in some investment capital. Uh, uh, enough to pay down all of our debt at 17 cents on the dollar and, and leave a few thousand dollars to invest in some promotion. And, and fortunately, we had written a business plan because he was thinking that he wanted to possibly slow down and, and do some other things, maybe work on some books and uh, had just begun to talk about training me to take it over. And I was arguing with him that I didn't know if I was staying because I still wasn't sure. Um, and then he passed away. And uh, his two closest confidants slash friends in the NFL at the time, because, you know, back in the, in the sixties and seventies, there were no NFL insiders. You, you know, there, there were a few people uh, in the media who got close to ownership or management. And my dad had gotten very close with Al Davis and Jim Finks, uh, you know, unrelated to each other, but Jim, because he was here in Chicago and we I've lived in Chicago all my life, except for my years in Ann Arbor. Um, and we've always been based here. And then Al Davis, because, uh, you know, we can talk a lot about Al, uh, but he truly was visionary in a lot of regards. And he understood the importance uh, of, of a free and thriving media in terms of promoting the game. Remember, this is the 1960s and 70s NFL, not, not today's, uh, where the media has kind of almost become the enemy of sorts. But, but Al and, and Jim and my dad were all very close. And uh, they were, you know, really not obviously as devastated as my brothers and I, but, but uh, terribly saddened and, 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 and somewhat devastated at his passing. And they reached out to me and basically said, whatever you need. 
and and they became my counselors, uh, my guidance. They, um, they they taught me a ton about football. You know, I thought like everybody fan that that, that I knew everything and I knew so little, um, and and so I learned a lot about the game from them. But also, as one of the most successful general managers and most successful owners uh, in NFL history, they taught me about running businesses and 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 managing employees and and keeping up with technology. And um, there's no way that I would have survived in the business at all, probably not for more than a couple of years without them. And so I, I credit, uh, you know, whatever I've accomplished, first and foremost to my dad, um, but certainly next up would be Al Davis and Jim Finks. And, and there were some hard times. I mean, uh, we actually ended up going through a bankruptcy um, six years after my dad passed away, but that was as a result of the, of the 56 day work stoppage and the strike in 1982. And even through that, uh, Al kind of guided me through, you know, next steps. And while it did event, uh, eventually get to a chapter 11, we were able to, to come back out of that. And then finally started to have some success, um, uh, at the end of the eighties and through the nineties. Um, and you know, my career, probably would have ended before it started and pro football weekly which is somewhat regarded as the bible of professional football would have never attained that status if it was not for their contributions so you still had to take the magazine to a different level and you basically invented draft analysis on pro football weekly one could say hub you created a monster well Again, I, 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 that credit is to my dad. Um, in the late 60s, going back to 68 and 69, right after the merger, um, he anticipated that at least it was important for fans to have access to. I don't think ever thought it would become the cottage industry that it has. And he found a couple guys, the Marasco brothers. They were insurance salesmen out of Philadelphia who as a hobby, as a passion, uh, scouted college football. And so he, we became the first uh, independent vehicle to actually ever publish draft ratings available to the public. They were so good, Carl and Pete, that they both got jobs in professional football. Um, uh, Pete ended up as a personnel, uh, I think he was a pro personnel director with the Jets. Carl ended up as the personnel director for the CFL, actually did some work with the Bears, I believe, in the 80s. But when they went away, uh, we felt that we still wanted to develop that aspect of it. And it was literally a few months before my dad passed away um, that we decided to give Joel Buxbaum uh, a chance. Joel was just out of high school, basically a year in junior college out of Brooklyn. And uh, we hired him uh, a couple months after we hired him. My dad passed away and, and I knew, you know, it seemed like the right thing to do. So did at that point develop Joel. And uh, in addition to his rankings, we began publishing our scouts notebook. It was three or four years before Mel Kuyper was hired at ESPN and almost a decade before ESPN started televising the draft. And it was really 15, 20 years that, that ESPN and Mel and, and Joel and, and, and Pro Football Weekly, we had the marketplace to ourselves uh, with the explosion of the internet in the 90s. Other draft experts, quote draft experts came along. There's never been anyone like Joel Buxbaum and I'm sure even Mel Kuyper would tell you that. Um, Joel, unfortunately, passed away very young at the age of 48 in 2002, mm -hmm. and we then trained Nolan Naraki, who became the next uh, leading independent draft analyst for over a decade, um, and, and Nolan is actually now a scout with the, uh, with the Las Vegas Raiders.
Want to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know? It's easy. Just follow me on social media, at George Offman. That's O-F-M-A-N. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please follow or subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. We resume with the best of year two on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. Imagine the position Dave Refson was in. The very amiable host of the Big Ten Network was simply looking for a golf game. Little did he realize who he would be paired with. This is one of those stories you might find just a little hard to believe. I vacillated in telling you about this, George, because <laughs> I am not proud of this. Um, here is the story. I was 2003, as you said, and we are on Martha's Vineyard. We lived in Connecticut. I was at ESPN at this time. And we went for a, a week's vacation on the vineyard and rented a house there. And I was able to negotiate with my wife, who is great. Like, she's the most patient person in the world. She's not one of those people who, like, limits me or whatever. But we had a young kid, and this was her vacation, too. And she's like, go play golf one time. Knock yourself out. So I negotiated one round of golf. And so I call Farm Neck, which is the, the really famous golf course on Martha's Vineyard where, you know, like Bill Clinton plays there when he's out there and uh, Barack Obama would play there. And, and so it's a private course in the morning. It's a public course in the afternoon. And so I call for a tea time and they, I'm a single and they say, yeah, we got a tea time at two o'clock. Why don't you come on out? We got a threesome and you can join them. I said, great. And so I go out there and I'm at the range and I'm hitting balls and I'm not hitting them well. I'm kind of stressed out. And it's like maybe 152. And I look at my watch. I'm like, oh, no, I got to go. I got to go. So I get my cart and I speed over to the tee. And there are two carts there, one with two bags on it, one with one bag. And the starter says, put your bag on the, the cart with one. Those guys went inside to get bug spray. They're coming back out. I'm like, great. I'm working on my swing, work on my swing. They come out. And I'm not paying attention. It's these three guys. I'm kind of looking down. I'm not really looking at them. And the first guy says his name, and I say, hi, I'm Dave. And the second guy says his name. I say, hi, I'm Dave. And the third guy says, I'm OJ. And I look up at him. I'm like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> what am I supposed to do? So think about this. Okay. And so at this point, it's like 158. We're teeing off in two minutes. This is the one round of golf I've negotiated. I am at this point a public figure. Now, I'm not a, you know, again, like I work at ESPN. I'm on the air. Uh, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to pretend I'm anything I'm not, but I'm a public figure. And I'm thinking to myself, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to go with this guy? I really want to play golf, <laughs> you know, but this doesn't seem like a great idea. And, and in that moment, I'm just like, I, I just, we teed off like they were going to the tee. And so we tee off. And the crazy thing was I get in the cart and I sit down and OJ sits next to me. So they've got a threesome, George. And they don't even put OJ with one of the other guys that he knows. So at 157, I'm thinking, like, who am I going to be playing golf with? At 202, I'm hurling down the first fairway in a cart with OJ Simpson. 
it was crazy. And yeah, it ended up being a really weird day. Um, you know, look, he obviously, you know, my, my joke afterward, I, I kept kind of thinking of quips in my head. I'm thinking, well, he's, he's obviously going to quit after nine to continue the search for the real killer. Right. Uh, you know, <laughs> no, no way this guy's You're got time for 18. You're a nasty man. You know that, don't you? <laughs> no way this guy's got time for 18, right? Uh, so, <laughs> but he, you know, look, he was, he was very solicitous kind of along the way and going out of his way to kind of convert America one golfer at a time, right, into to being on his side. And kind of what are you supposed to do? He asked me what I did for a living. I said I was an accountant. He didn't know. <laughs> he apparently didn't watch enough ESPN to know who I was or, or frankly, frankly didn't care. And so, yeah, that was the end of it. Now, I will say that at the end of it, I said, uh, I'm going to turn in this score for my handicap. Would you mind attesting on the scorecard? Which I think had to have been the most transparent thing that anyone had ever done. But, but yes, yeah, so I got him to sign the scorecard, which I still have. And then, George, I mean, I really was paranoid. Of that, that it really, you know, it's a bad decision. I mean, in hindsight, if I was presented with the same position in the same spot today, you know, I, I, I wouldn't play. I mean, I, I just think I, you know, I wouldn't ride with it. Um, but, but at the time, I, I did, and I was a little nervous about it. I only told a couple people and kind of said, "Hey, don't, don't tell anyone." And then, uh, yeah, just kind of, that was it. That was my round with OJ. One of our very first guests, longtime NHL analyst Eddie Olchek, discussed how he dealt with cancer. And now you'll hear from another guest with a similar story. Mark Silverman is a co-host with Tom Waddle on a very successful show on ESPN Radio's WMVP in Chicago. Sylvie, as he's best known, had no inhibitions sharing his story in public. So I share stuff. I share stuff. I share my rants. I share my off the sports stories. And this was something that I wanted to share. And, you know, I, I got to admit, I mean, a, a part of it was a little selfish because it's therapeutic. Um, I learned throughout the way that I, you know, the more I spoke about it, the more open I can get, uh, the better it is to, to heal your body. I did a, like a deep dive on, on all that, the mental aspect of dealing with cancer. Um, it, it took me a while. It, it was about a month between the, and we're coming up on the two year anniversary of the diagnosis and when I went public, because I wanted to make sure all the I's were dotted and T's were crossed. I knew what I had, I knew what the treatment would be so I can give all the, the information possible on the air. And, and I just went with it and I never expected it to turn out the way it was. I thought there would be concerned people. I thought I'd get some love, but never did I think that I'd get the outreach that I got. Well, the support you got was really something. Um, and I, I, I imagine it just had to help you immensely. Sylvie Strong became a rally cry with uh, replete with T-shirts. That had to be uplifting. It's incredible. Um, and it's what people told me about this army of, of not, I mean, uh, first of all, of people who are either survivors or going through it themselves. Georgia can't tell you how many people who had it worse than me, who one is no longer with us. There was this one listener and I still have it. I'm looking at it right now. He, he just passed away um, from brain cancer. And he sent me while he was going through his battle, a key on a necklace and the key said courage. And 
he was thinking of me, even though he was going through his own fight uh, of dealing with cancer and much worse than I had it. But he was there for me. And there were a lot of people like that. People are selfless. There are a lot of still selfless people in this world. And what that, yes, and what that does for you, it just, it lifts you up. And I try and do that now with any listener whoever dms me and they have a cancer diagnosis i can't give them medical advice but i i can always give them mental advice and sort of how to roll with the punches what advice did you get from eddie olchek whose battle with cancer also was a very public event it's incredible because i always tell eddie this that i don't know what it was but eddie went through it a year or two before me but it was it was during the time that he was uh, doing a lot of shows with Cap on our radio station. They always knew Eddie, but I never knew him well. And I got to know him well as he was doing more stuff with the radio station. And I love the guy. Um, but I always, my ears always perked up when he was candid. And I guess this goes back to your, your point about, um, you know, did I feel an obligation that I had to tell people or did I want to share? And it, it always stood out to me. I'm like, wow. Listen to what Eddie's going through. Listen to how real he is. Listen to, to you know, if he, if he gets choked up, he doesn't care. This is just who he is. Mm -hmm. And he was always really open about what he was going through. And one of my first phone calls, believe it or not, before I told my mom, because um, like most moms who are worried, again, I wanted to have all my information right. I didn't want to say I don't know to her about different things. So I didn't want to scare her. I called Eddie before that because he it always stood out to me on what he went through, what he had to deal with, how successful it turned out to be for him. I said, Eddie, I just went to the doctor and this is what I, I'm dealing with. I need to find out more. What can you help me with? What can you tell me about this? He was fantastic. And even to this day, George, and I'm going on two years of remission, he'll still text me out of the blue, thinking of you with a praying emoji. Uh, and just to let me know that he's, he's that I popped up in his brain. And, and he did that throughout my entire process of going through chemo. Well, he's a wonderful human being. And like yourself, he really does wear his heart on his sleeve. So it is April 2020. You get the news from your doctor. How did you cope with it initially? Oh my, uh, there was a day in um, that first week of April. I still remember it. I could still smell um, the air outside in the process that I went through because uh, I was seeing my internist and um, you know I had the lump, uh, uh, my uh, lymph node that was swollen in my neck and I had a one that, that in my groin was what worried me more. And I went to the, the internist and, and he told me uh, that the blood work turned out well, but he still wanted me to get a biopsy on it just to rule out cancer. So I thought I was going to get it ruled out. I didn't think I was going to get diagnosed. And then it was a Friday and it was, uh, you know, as, as the pandemic was starting too, and right before I was going down to work, that the head and neck specialist was doing the ultrasound on me before she drew the fluid out for the biopsy. And she pretty much knew right then that I had some form of lymphoma. And I'll never forget coming home uh, that night after work and just like my wife had to hold me, you know, like hold me like a baby. And I just cried in her arms, you know, and 
all these dark thoughts go through your brain. And then it was that Sunday when the CAT scan, I went to the CAT scan at, uh, in Evanston, um, at Evanston Hospital, the Cal- I think their, their cancer center is the Kellogg Center. And um, that furthered the diagnosis. And then there were still other steps, but I knew I had cancer. <clears throat> and, you know, the dark thoughts of my kids are five and three at the time or whatever they were. And like, are they going to know me? You know, are they going to remember me? What if I'm gone? Who's going to like, is there going to be someone that replaces me that they think of as their dad? All these selfish, like uh, admittedly selfish thoughts, like, are they going to remember me? Will they remember the time they spent with me? I'm thinking about, am I going to die and all this stuff? And you deal with it for the 24 hours, for the 48 hours. And then what I've always done is you get to work. Okay, now what? And I start researching it. And that's where the mental stuff really came into play, where I was a huge believer in getting the mind right. Because I believe that if the mind's not right, the body will not follow, follow the mind. Uh, and, and, and it could get worse. So I wanted to heal the mind so the body could heal. Did you know General Motors 2021 Supplier of the Year is located in Hillside, Illinois? Dynamic Manufacturing not only remanufactures transmissions for the likes of GM, but also as a state-of-the-art facility. Its capabilities include engineering new or existing products, along with manufacturing, machining, logistics, and re-energizing used batteries for electric cars and energy storage systems. I've seen their operation firsthand, and their nearly 1 million square feet of operating space is extremely impressive. Dynamic was founded by the late, great John Partipillo in 1955 and is still family-owned and operated by the next generation. For more information about Dynamic Manufacturing, visit their website at dynamicmanufacturinginc.com. Dynamic Manufacturing. Honor the legacy. Pioneer the future. Finally, the dilemma that still faces Tom Brenneman. Fired as the voice of the Cincinnati Reds and Fox Sports nearly two and a half years ago for uttering a gay slur on the air, Brenneman is still looking for work, albeit there has been a silver lining. The journey for the whole thing has been amazing. I've come to learn so much, and I'm so grateful for a number of of, of, uh, the gay community members here in Cincinnati that um, they could have just written me off and said, you know, you're this and you're that and blah, blah, blah. They didn't. Uh, primarily a group of about a dozen of the leaders in that community. Uh, I went over to the guy's house, was invited over to just sit and listen uh, roughly about 10 days after all this happened uh, to learn about what the word that I said really means to a lot of people. And I heard one story from a guy um, gay man who told me when he was living in, in Seattle, uh, he was going to a, a party and the party was a drag party. So he was dressed up as a woman walking down the street in Seattle. The guy has a beard. So obviously it was, you know, it wasn't a woman. Yeah. Um, he's telling me this story and, and, and he gets to a crosswalk in downtown Seattle and uh, two cars stop one car and then a pickup truck, and they both wave him through, wave him across the road. He walks across, goes by the first car, 
as he starts to cross in front of the pickup truck, the pickup truck uh, hits the gas, runs over this guy right in the street. Uh, his teeth literally are laying on the ground. He's bleeding from everywhere, broken bones all over his body. The man in the pickup truck gets out of the pickup truck, walks up to him laying there on the ground and spits on him and calls him the word that I used flippantly that night on the air in August of 2020. Well, that will open your eyes in a hurry. I didn't hear as many stories maybe quite that severe or dramatic, but that one will stay with me for the rest of my life. And so ever since then, you know, if there is such a thing to try and right my wrong, I've done it. Um, I've tried to do it and will continue to do it. I befriended a guy, a gay man, who is the leading spokesperson for the gay community of collegiate athletics, collegiate athletes who are gay, and Olympic athletes who are gay. A guy named Sid Ziegler. And he owns what's called Out Sports. Yeah. It's a, um, it's, it's a very well-known uh, gay athletic website. You did an interview with him, which was really extraordinary to read. How important was that interview for you to possibly get back in the business? Well, I mean, George, look, nobody's offering me a job. I mean, you know, I, I can't do anything about that. Do I wish it was different? I do wish it was different. Do I look around sometimes and, and say, wow, man, I mean, uh, you know, this network just hired that guy. This guy just hired that guy. You know, um, I, I, I even, you know, tried to say to my bosses, look, I, I don't wish anybody any will will in any, in any form or fashion. I said, but you gave Michael Vick a chance to come back. I said, now, you know, I'm not comparing or contrasting, but there are a lot of animal lovers out there. And there was a point in time where this guy was was torturing and killing dogs. And now, is my what I said worse, not as bad? I don't know. That's for somebody else to decide. But I was just saying, I, I, I think that, you know, if you look at what I've tried to do since then, I I, I would like to hope and pray that it would warrant somebody at least considering giving me another chance. And you, you know what you find out, George, and, and it's even pointed out in that out sports article that we referred to earlier, where the guy who's considered to be the leading uh, voice of the LGBT community here in, in Cincinnati is a big executive with Johnson and Johnson, a guy named uh, Ryan Messer. He had written, and I had never met Ryan Messer at this point in time, like two days after I said what I said, um, he wrote a letter to the editor in the Cincinnati Inquirer local paper that Tom Brenneman should not be fired. Uh, there is room for growth here in so many areas and a great opportunity for him, for the gay community, for the Reds, for our society. And, you know, I reached out to the guy and made contact with him. And he's the guy whose house we went to that I made reference to earlier and listening to a bunch of the stories with some other gay leaders. But anyway, I, I, I said, if you have people there, and I know you do, that are gay, that work there. I said, I would put up the amount of hours that I have spent in the gay community in some form or fashion over the last year against anybody you have that works in that office, it's gay. And I mean, you know, and, and, and it, it's almost like in, in some cases, it just falls on deaf ears. And, but sooner or later, there's going to be somebody out there that says, wait a minute now, this guy worked hard for 32 years broadcasting, 34 years broadcasting Major League Baseball. He announced the NFL 
for 24 years, college football, basketball, whatever it might be. And, you know, by no means was, was I a, a good announcer, a great announcer, none of those things. I did the best that I could with God-given ability and tried to work hard at it. But I never was a pain in the tail to the people who employed me. And, and, and again, not that I was a perfect person by any stretch of the imagination, but you weren't waking up the next day reading about me doing something that's embarrassing the franchise. Now, what I did with the Reds in 2020 certainly did that. But you know, I'd like to think there's somebody out there, and there will be, and all it takes is one, is just to say, you know what? Okay, this was a mistake. Here's a documentation of what the guys tried to do since then. Um, we're going to take a chance, answer some tough questions, and, and, and take a chance and, and, and get them back in the booth. But you know what, George? If it doesn't happen, it's not going to be the end of my life. You know, I wish, you know, like I said to my kids, I, I wish there weren't people out there, and they're going to be, and, and one of the hardest things to accept during all of this is I know I am not a homophobe. And I said that at the beginning of this show. But there are always going to be people after I go to my grave, there are always going to be people that think that I'm a homophobe. And that's the most troubling part about this whole thing to me, because I know I'm not. I know I'm not and never have been and never will be. Um, and so, but again, I, I, you know, now whether or not that happens, you know, um, the, only the Lord knows, uh, you know, the one thing I will say is, is with every curse, there comes many blessings. Uh, if it was going to happen, it happened in, in, in a phenomenal year of my life. Personally, our daughter was a senior in high school. Um, and I got to go to every single event in and around, not just the graduation, but a lot of the other things that went on in and around that graduation. I would have missed 90% of that with the baseball season starting in the spring. Our son is a, a really good lacrosse goalie. Um, and he was a starter for our high school varsity team, public high school in Cincinnati. And, uh, and they won the state lacrosse championship. And I got to see every single game, every minute of every game, which I would have missed. 95% of those games. So, you know, you just kind of keep plugging away and stay upbeat and keep the faith and hope that you get a chance. And if you don't, there's nothing I can do about it. I can pull myself, you know, uh, in this direction and that direction and getting mad and getting upset. And I've done all those things, but there's nothing I can do about it at the end of the day. My thanks to Mike North, Will Perdue, Hub Arkish, Dave Refson, Mark Silverman, and Tom Brenneman for contributing to our very successful year two. And as always, to our very generous sponsors, Vienna Beef and Dynamic Manufacturing. Thank you for your support. This podcast would not be possible without the help and loyalty of TJ Reeves, who puts it on the map, Will Hatzel, who does our mixing and editing, and Nick Tochi, who designs our wonderful graphics. Thanks, men. And yes, there will be a season seven of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. It begins January 17th with a two-part episode featuring a Hall of Fame Iron Man from the NHL. Please join us then. And that's all she wrote. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. 
book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.